Abortion in the Church, Chapter 2, Abortion's Assault Upon God's Character and Law, Section 6A, Dealing with Common Justifications for Abortion, Rape and Incest. Readers who consider themselves strongly pro-life may yet be uncomfortable with the complete repeal of legalized abortion because of concern for the well-being of women who are pregnant as a result of rape and incest. Should abortion be legal in these cases? Even the discussion of these exceptional cases is dangerous. Pro-lifers have many scars they can show from times they've been foolish enough to condemn the killing of babies conceived in rape and incest. If they refuse to modulate their position, the attack was vicious and left them tarred and feathered as an extremist, a monster. Questions fly. Why should a woman have to bear the consequences of her violation? Isn't this validating the sin of the rapist? How can anyone countenance requiring a woman to gaze day after day at this child who is a living reminder of the wicked man who violated her? The objections are weighty but let's bring them into the light of day and examine them. First, the proportion of abortions due to rape or incest is minuscule. For example, in Germany, the percentage of abortions related to rape or incest is around 0.02% annually. In the United States, to the extent that such statistics are available, the numbers are similar, less than 0.5% are related to a prior rape. We remember the legal maxim that hard or exceptional cases make bad law when we realize how exceedingly rare abortions due to rape and incest actually are, comprising much less than 1% of abortions. Such hard cases should not be allowed to form our nation's laws on abortion. By the way, I'm going to again remind listeners that in the hard copy, there are many, many footnotes that are quite substantial that I'm not reading. For instance, about a third of the page that I'm reading right now is footnotes that I have not mentioned and text, not just citations, but explanations and quotations. Thank you. But leaving the question of the law aside, Are there good reasons not to kill the little one conceived by rape and incest? First, a word of caution. Since this question is fraught with emotion issuing from some of the most painful circumstances of life, it's difficult to discuss without surrounding that discussion with pastoral care that is sensitive and ministers to readers the compassion of our Lord for the oppressed and those who suffer. We do work to demonstrate his compassion and tenderness, but we know our efforts will fail to satisfy the needs of readers, needs that are wholly legitimate. Two things, then. First, please understand that this document is completely taken up with consideration of parts of life and death 
which have caused many readers great anguish. In many cases, such persons are inconsolable, separate from the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Quote, in the midst of life, we live in death, unquote, as the Book of Common Prayer states in the committal service at graveside. Rape, incest, and abortion are each part of that death. So yes, like abortion itself, rape and incest cause their victims awful suffering. And we write in full awareness that reading this discussion of these things will add to the suffering of those harmed by these crimes. Given it is true those who have suffered rape or incest are innocent of the crime, while those who have committed abortion are guilty of the crime, discussion of these crimes will for many be torment. Yet discuss we must, because all these things are a matter of truth and falsehood, righteousness and wickedness, life and death. It is not possible to proceed with any discussion of the wickedness of abortion, rape, and incest without faith that truth is glorious and needs no justification, whether its discovery and recognition lead to joy or pain. God has fashioned truth in such a way that it is indispensable to the healing of sin and the pain it causes, whether that sin is others or our own. Second, the church is our household of faith, and we need her ministry and instruction particularly while considering the subject of this document. The world will be of little help to us, but the church of Jesus Christ will teach and clean and exhort and rebuke and encourage and comfort us as she has every generation since her birth at Pentecost. Considering and repenting of abortion is a work to be done in community. We have no illusion our arguments here can both convince and console. Nevertheless, these arguments must be marshaled and presented to the church if her members are to repent and give themselves to the protection of mothers and their children. Making those arguments requires raising these painful matters of rape and incest because over the past half century, no justification of the murder of little ones in their mother's womb has been more constant and effective than the supposed necessity of the deaths of babies conceived by rape and incest. So now we turn to it, asking our readers understanding for the necessity of our discussion being less than exhaustive. To begin, then, Note that the arguments against abortion made throughout this chapter also apply to abortion in cases of rape and incest. Any murder attacks the image of God he has placed in each child, regardless of the circumstances of that child's conception. Abortion is a crime against society. Destroying the bonds of mutual obligation and fellowship we share, regardless of the circumstances of our conception. Any abortion destroys a human being, the greatest natural resource God has placed on his green earth. Any and every abortion has been universally condemned by church fathers through two millennia and is a heinous crime against nature, man, and God. Beyond the above, 
To use the circumstances of the conception of a child as justification for the murder of that child is a denial of a fundamental principle of justice, that we are to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. Who is more guilty than the rapist? And who is more innocent than the unborn child? To kill an unborn child conceived in rape punishes that little one and her mother, not the rapist. Far from being a just and merciful alleviation of suffering, it multiplies the violence already surrounding this violent crime. Many Christians are sympathetic to arguments in favor of aborting little ones conceived through rape and incest. But why? What is the nature of our vulnerability to this tactic of the abortionists? There are several explanations for this vulnerability. Number one, as Christians, we feel intense pressure to state repeatedly that we share our culture's commitment to viewing rape as the highest, most horrible crime of violence against women. It's as if we have to prove Christians are, in fact, concerned and respectful toward women. And never mind that all prior generations of Christians condemned rape as a heinous crime and subjected those committing it to the most severe penalties. Never mind that all past generations of Christian fathers, husbands, and sons loved, cared for, and defended their mothers, wives, and daughters. Never mind the records across Christendom of their grief over the terrible, lifelong suffering of women who had been raped, Why is this not enough for us today? Christians feel the need to prove their respect for women by joining the mob's attack on the innocent child, executing that child for the crimes of her father. Have we forgotten God's words to Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, quote, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. We have not progressed in our moral discernment and compassion above our fathers and mothers in the faith before us. Rather, showing ourselves attentive and concerned for the violence of rape inflicted on the mother by condoning the killing of her child conceived through that act is proof our moral discernment and compassion have decayed. Even if our concern were limited solely to the mother and not the child, do we not recognize this child shares her mother's DNA, that in every sense of the word she is her mother's child? The execution of the mother's child for the sin of the child's father is a more violent attack on womanhood than rape. In his book, City of God, St. Augustine speaks of the comfort women who are the victims of the violence of rape may take in their undefiled chastity. He continues, quote, A woman who has been violated by the sin of another and without any consent of her own has no cause to put herself to death, for in that case she commits certain homicide for a crime which is not her own. Unquote. 
If it is homicide for a mother to kill herself for the crime of another, it is also homicide for that mother to kill her baby for the crime of another. Certainly, it seems harsh to warn a victim of rape against committing homicide, but this warning is needed. The temptations to utter despair and the crimes attendant upon such despair in the life of man and woman must be anticipated and warned against. These warnings are the fruit of our understanding, love, and compassion. In our pastoral care, we must not have one eye on our reputation among worldlings and pagans and another on God. Keep in mind what may be our Lord's most sober warning, quote, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Unquote. Matthew 10, verse 28. Rape does terrible violence to the body and soul of the woman, but there is no crime more awful than murder, which Scripture demonstrates by revealing the place, quote, murderers, unquote, will be cast on the day of judgment. Quote, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Unquote. Revelation 21, verse 8. The point is not that abortion is such an awful crime against man and God that it is beyond the mercy of God and Jesus Christ. No, and never. The blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse us from little sins or some sins, but all sins. Right here, given the tendency we have to minimize the sin of murder by maximizing the sin of rape, let us hear the word of God concerning our tendency to deny our own sin and refuse to confess the evil we ourselves have done, and also our tendency to consign some sins and sinners to be beyond any forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, quote, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Unquote. Number two, another explanation for our vulnerability to arguments in defense of liberalized laws on abortion is that we can identify with a woman's suffering, but not the baby's. It is likely each of us knows a woman who has suffered this outrage, our wife, our daughter, our mother. Those of us who are women can place ourselves in that situation. Those of us who are men can sympathize to some extent because of our love for these women. Still, none of us can place ourselves in the womb with the unborn child. It is a hidden world, unknown to us, and the child that lives in it for nine months is someone who cannot speak as her own advocate. So when the deceiver 
comes to us and insinuates that the suffering of the woman takes precedence over the right of the unborn child to life, we're suckers. Our heart is bound up with the woman there in front of our eyes, not with the child who remains unseen and unheard. Thus, we become guilty of the superficial judgment our Lord warns us against. John 7, verse 24, quote, Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, unquote. Number three. Another explanation for our vulnerability is our belief that it is unjust for us to suffer consequences for the sins of others. Increasingly, it is true that many of us think grace means freedom from consequences of any sin by anyone. But if going there is a bridge too far, we'll concede that Scripture teaches that our own sins have consequences, Samson and his libido, David and Bathsheba, Ananias and Sapphira. But bearing the consequences of others' sins? No way. The just God would never require that of anyone. Yet he is just, and he does require it. Scripture is full of such examples from national and societal judgments, for instance, the flood, the Canaanites, Israel, to sins whose punishment God visits upon families. This continues in our own day. When we are made late to work because of the traffic caused by a careless accident or a speeder, when the used car we bought turns out to have a dying engine because the seller never changed the oil, sometimes it's more serious. When our father's coldness leaves us longing for affection, when we lose our home because of arson, or even when we're injured because of a drunk driver. All through our lives, we suffer because of the sins of others. We may protest, arguing this is unjust. We may complain against God, but in the end, it's to no avail. No matter how big the consequence we think we've suffered, there's one that's far greater, that every man has already suffered, and by God's decree. The imposition of God's curse upon each of us for our father, Adam's sin. In light of this imputation of Adam's sin upon every man and woman, all our complaints of the injustice of the thing fall short. So yes, the violation of a woman's soul and body at the hands of rape is a tragedy. It's a vile evil. It's a crime deserving of the harshest condemnation which ought to provoke our most tender compassion for its victim. But we may not conclude from this that we have a right to a life free from the consequences of others' sins. God disposes as he sees fit, and his arrangement of even the sins against us is done in his perfect will. He sees the end from the beginning. He also knows what each of us is able to endure the trials he sends our way. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Number four. Finally, we are vulnerable to arguments in favor of abortion in cases of rape and incest because we think large thoughts of our own justice, but small thoughts of God's ability to bring fruit out of suffering, not to mention his everlasting promise to bring every deed into the light. 
at that great day of judgment. Our thoughts and conceptions of justice are small and limited, but God's are perfect. He specializes in bringing light from darkness, life from death, and fruit from desolation. This is the testimony found across Scripture. We see it in the garden, where Adam's sin and condemnation bring with them the hope of future redemption through the seed of the woman. We see it in Joseph and his brothers, where the wickedness of his brothers leads to the sparing of God's people, but also the protection of the nation of Egypt from famine. As Joseph testifies, quote, God meant it for good, unquote, Genesis 50, verse 20. Consider what is perhaps the most relevant case in Scripture, which is one of the most sordid incidents in Scripture, the incest between Lot and his two daughters. Even in comparison to other sins in Scripture, this one stands out for its horror. It seems to us a filthy climax to Lot's descent, the final defilement of his body, name, and posterity, mating and producing children by lying with his own flesh and blood. Yet, that is not all of the story, for the account ends not with Lot's nor his daughter's sin, but the fruit that resulted from that sin. In this case, the peoples of the Moabites and Ammonites that sprang from Lot's incestuous unions. Despite Lot's sin, despite his daughter's wickedness, God, as he does throughout Scripture, still grants them children who go on to become two great peoples. Some privilege, the attentive reader of Scripture might say, for the Moabites and Ammonites were not God's chosen people, but Israel's enemies. But once again, this too is not the end of God's story, for out of the vile Moabites, God was pleased to bring godly Ruth, as well as her great-grandson, who was a man after God's own heart. His name was David. And from David's line, our Lord Jesus Christ descended. We may think it undignified to have the bloodline of our Lord extend back through Lot's daughters in their incest. Yet here we have another example of God confounding the wisdom of the wise. Faithless men view Lot's sin with despair. But in God's economy, nothing is wasted. He is the steward of suffering and habitually produces fruit from that suffering. Back in 1971, countercultural icon and author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey, gave an interview to Paul Krasner, publisher and editor of the National Alternative Journal, titled The Realist. During that interview, the subject of abortion was raised, specifically abortion in the case of rape. Krasner asked Kesey, quote, And yet, since you're against abortion, doesn't that put you in the position of saying that a girl or a woman must bear an unwanted child as punishment for ignorance or carelessness? Easy answered, quote, In as I feel abortions to be probably the worst worm in the revolutionary philosophy, a worm bound in time to suck the righteousness and the life from the work we are engaged in, I want to take this slowly and carefully. 
Punishment of Unwed Mothers? Bullshit. Care of neither the old nor the young can be considered to be punishment for the able. Not even the care of the undead old or the unborn young. These beings, regardless not only of race, creed, and color, but as well of size, situation, or ability, must be treated as equals and their rights to life not only recognized but defended, his emphasis. Can they defend themselves? You are you from conception, and that never changes no matter what physical changes your body takes. And the virile sport in the Mustang driving to work with his muscular forearm tanned and ready for a day's labor has not one microgram more, his emphasis, right to his inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then has the three months fetus riding in a sack of water or the vegetable rotting for 20 years in a gurney bed. Who's to know the value or extent of another's trip? How can we assume that the world through the windshield of that Mustang is any more rich or holy or even sane than the world before those pale blue eyes? How can abortion be anything but fascism again? Back is a fad in a new intellectual garb with a new and more helpless victim. Kesey continues, I swear to you, Paul, that abortions are a terrible karmic bummer, and to support them, except in cases where it is a bona fide toss-up between the child and the mother's life, is to harbor a worm of discrepancy. Krasner asks this question, quote, well, that's really eloquent and misty-poo, but suppose Faye, this was Kesey's wife, but suppose Faye were raped and became pregnant in the process, unquote. Kesey answers, quote, nothing has changed. You don't plow under the corn because the seed was planted with a neighbor's shovel, unquote. As moderns, we recoil at Kesey's terrible insensitivity as we see it. Hearing him speak of the fruit of the rapist's sin horrifies us. How dare he speak of his wife's potential rape in such gross agricultural terms? How dare he attribute any blessing or fruit to rape? As we ask our questions, it may become clear to us that our concern is not so much with life as it is with shame. The woman who suffers rape becomes covered with shame. She can't help herself. Her shame makes her want to die. Such shame requires something heavy, something on the order of the sacrifice of her child. This shame cannot be healed or removed by talk of some hypothetical goodness or fruit proceeding from the rapist's violent and filthy ruination of her. But shall we stop our train of thought long enough to consider that God's thoughts are not ours, that all of his attributes exist in perfect harmony, and thus there is no tension between the justice due the rapist and the justice due the mother and innocent child? Proverbs 16, verse 4, quote, The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster, unquote. The rapist has his coming day of reckoning. 
if not by the state performing its duty, then by God carrying out his prerogative. Meanwhile, both the rapist's crime and God's punishment of him will conform to God's purposes, and not our own. This is hard for us to fathom. We comfort ourselves with the lie that such terrible evils are outside God's appointments. Actually, though, this is no comfort at all, for then we are left with unchecked evil and a powerless or compassionless God. In the end, we must face the God who is, not the idol we make of him in our own mind. This true God is never the author of sin, but neither is he a passive observer watching sin wreak its havoc. In his economy, the woman who suffers rape is not simply doomed to an interminable shame and victimhood from that moment onward. The God who forgives sin also heals shame, calling his redeemed ones to find their honor and glory in his adoption of them as his sons and daughters. He restores the years the locusts have eaten, and often that restoration comes in the form of new grain, new fruit, and new life brought about through others' sins against us. This is a message of true compassion. It is not the compassion of the world which postures itself as love for others while refusing to declare the truth. Rather, this is the true charity that mourns the indignity and outrage of rape and grieves with women and children, while also refusing to let their lives be consumed by it. The true love that fully recognizes the terrible violation of woman such evil does will not be overcome by attacks upon God or the unborn little one, but only by the sustaining mercy of Christ. This true compassion will lead the sufferers to Christ, for Jesus knows what it is to be attacked, what it is to be innocent and violently abused, and what it is to commit his soul to the keeping of the one who is righteous. Matthew 19, verse 26, quote, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, unquote. Now do I sleep the sleep of death have my days come to an end Oh Lord, will you defend Come, Holy Savior, come my way To you I pray